I want to welcome everyone here this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite everyone to turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We've been worshiping the Lord together this morning. Getting signals in the back. Raise the roof. Oh, louder. Sorry. Louder. Uh, Might take just a second to get this new room microphone tweaked. All right. I want to remind everyone of the goal this morning, the privilege that we have. So we get to gather together in Jesus' name. And the goal, as we gather around God's Word, is to have something that's profitable to us. And that's what God says the Scriptures are. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Brothers, do I need to change to this other microphone? We're good? Thumbs up. Okay. Overcoming adversity this morning. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That means that the Bible comes from the mouth of God and it's for our good. It does something in our life. It's not unprofitable. God's Word is profitable. And this is why we pray. Every time we gather, every time we open the book, that the goal is not to just have our minds merely intellectually instructed, but to be edified by the Word and by the Spirit of God. We need the Lord this morning all around the room. We need the Word of God. And so I want to ask you humbly, sincerely, let's pray together. Let's call on the name of the Lord. And let's ask God to speak to us from His Word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. Not one word that you've spoken, not one promise that you've made, Lord, has fallen to the ground in vain. Lord, you are true and you are a faithful God. Lord, you tell us that all the promises that you have made are yes to us in Jesus. And Lord, we need you today. Our weary souls need you today. God, there are many new faces in the room this morning. We pray for them today, Lord, that you would reveal Christ Jesus to these men and women, old and young. Lord, we ask for a work of grace in this gathering today that we would leave our time, Lord, with our souls full of your word. God, we ask ask to be fed this morning our portion from You, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we gather around the Word of God, the goal is never to hear from the preacher, but to hear from God. So if uh, we're gathered to eat a spiritual meal together. The meal is never the preacher. The meal is the book. The preacher is the waiter. The preacher delivers what God said. At least a faithful preacher delivers what God said. And so we're about to read God's Word together. 
And as we remind you often, this is the most important thing you'll hear in the next hour. These are God-breathed words from heaven without error. Let's read the Scriptures together. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is God's Word to Grace Community Church this morning. This is what we're asking the Lord to bless, to reveal to us. The temptation of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that chapter 3 ended with the Father announcing from heaven something true about Jesus. He said, this is my Son, the one whom, in whom I am well pleased. This is the well-pleasing Son of God, Jesus Christ. This audible voice spoke to Jesus from heaven about sonship. And then as we come to chapter 4 this morning, we see these same themes are continuing. This theme of sonship as we come to the testing and the trial of Jesus Christ. In fact, the tempter's first first words to Jesus in those first two temptations are these. If you are the Son of God. So I want you to get that in your minds this morning, that these are connected. Son of God declared audible voice from heaven. And then Son of God tested in the wilderness. Verse 1 is surprising to us because it takes an abrupt turn. Just like what happens with Israel as they come out of the wilderness. They pass through the waters and then the Lord makes this abrupt turn. And they head into this place of testing. This is a surprising thing. In Matthew 4, Jesus has just been anointed by the Holy Spirit. 
The Bible tells us that he was given the spirit of God without measure. He is the anointed of God, the true prophet, priest and king. And yet the very next thing we see in the gospel story is that the Holy Spirit that anointed Jesus leads Jesus into the wilderness. This desolate place, this place of aloneness. And verse one tells us it's with the aim of Jesus being tempted by the devil. God doesn't directly tempt Jesus in this story and God doesn't directly tempt any man or woman. But we see the sovereignty of God in this story. The sovereignty of God ruling over the schemes of Satan. What Satan means for evil, God means for good in this story. God is testing His Son. Satan is tempting the Son of God. From the Father's perspective, the goal is to display the perfect righteousness of His beloved Son. And so he just said that Jesus is already righteous. Jesus has already pleased his father in heaven. And the father is about to demonstrate the righteousness of his son, Jesus. This is similar to what happens in the book of Job to where God says, have you considered my servant Job? God doesn't tempt Job, but Satan sure does. The father is sovereign over these satanic temptations and the goal of Satan in this story is to cause the son of God to stumble just like he caused Adam to stumble in the garden and just like he caused Israel to stumble in the wilderness and so the gospel accounts are immediately after Jesus was anointed Jesus was assaulted by the devil And the more I studied this passage this week, I got one of those reminders that I was swimming in the deep end of Holy Scripture. I was reminded of the richness and the depth of God's Word. There's layers on top of layers of beauty and intentionality in this story of the temptation of Jesus Christ. And so as we dive into this account this morning... I want to make sure you understand the story behind the story. And what I mean by that is the temptation of Jesus has a prologue that we find in the Old Testament. There's a story before this story. And one of the things you may have noticed as we read these 11 verses together is the Old Testament is cited everywhere. I mean, there's Old Testament citations, quotations happening all in this passage and not just quotations, also allusions. There's something very important that we need to grasp about this passage is it's sending us backwards. It's sending us back to the prologue. It's sending us back to the Old Testament. And we know that because Jesus himself is citing scripture as he's being tempted by the devil. And to be more specific, Jesus is citing Scripture from a very specific place in God's Word. Every quotation that Jesus gives is from the section of Deuteronomy that begins with the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6 through Deuteronomy chapter 8. 
There's something really important about this passage that is in that section that God begins to remind Israel of their failure in the wilderness. This particular section of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6 through Deuteronomy chapter 9, God reminds Israel, His chosen nation, of their failure in the wilderness. And so Jesus is aware in this story as He heads into the wilderness, as Jesus is being tempted by the devil, He realizes that He's actually living out Old Testament prophecy. Ryan called this thematic prophecy several weeks ago. Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, is aware that He's living out these types and shadows in the Old Testament and that He's the fulfillment. He's aware of this. Therefore, He narrows these Scripture citations to this particular passage in Deuteronomy about the failures of Israel in the wilderness. Israel was God's son that God called out of Egypt. We heard that just in chapter 2. Um, a reference to Hosea the prophet. Israel was a son of God. Called out of Egypt. Passed through the waters of the Red Sea. And was tempted in the wilderness yet failed. And by these citations and all these parallels in this passage back to the Old Testament, Matthew is presenting to us Jesus as the true Israel, the true Son of God. He's been caught out of Egypt. He has passed through the waters of baptism. And now he is headed into the wilderness to be tested by his God. I hope you see these parallels. Jesus is God's true Son. And even the, the 40 days of fasting that Jesus endures is a parallel to the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. He's the true and better. He's the true Son of God. So there is deep and rich and elaborate connections in God's Word. And I hope that encourages you. Just that little glimpse at the depth and the beauty and the layers of Holy Scripture. That as Jesus, the man, lives out His life, His life is a living out of God-breathed words of Old Testament prophecy. Satan's temptations are seeking to repeat that wilderness failure of Israel. But this time is different. This time is different. This is a hopeless assault. So let's step back for a moment and let's think about the one that's being led into this wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is the, the Genesis 3.15 prophesied Messiah. This is the long-awaited seed of the woman that was born to crush the head of the serpent. The skull-crushing seed of the woman has been born, drawn out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is a hopeless assault of Satan. He's about to attack a perfect man 
Christ Jesus, the beloved Son of God, that always pleases the Father who is in heaven. One of the notes that Scripture strikes all over the New Testament is the sinlessness of Jesus. And it's one of the things that we know anything about Jesus Christ. The Bible wants us to know this. He is unlike any other man in this way. He never sinned. He is the righteous one. He is the holy one. He is a sinless man. Christ Jesus. I'll give you just a few examples of how the Bible describes him. He is holy. He is undefiled and he is separate from sinners. That's Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. He committed no sin, not even one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. It never entered into his mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And the Bible says that in him, in Jesus, there was no sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. So much so that that Jesus was sinless, that He stood before His enemies in John 8, and He says, which one of you convict me of sin? And not a one had any charge to bring against Jesus Christ. He is the sinless Son of God. Sinless Jesus. Righteous Jesus. But the Bible is equally clear about this point. That the sinlessness of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Jesus, it does not mean that Jesus was never tempted. Equally, with equal clarity, we are told in Scripture that this sinlessness is not because He was never tempted. It's in spite of temptation. Hebrews chapter 4, we are told that Jesus is tempted in every way That we are, yet without sin. And so the perfection of Jesus Christ is not because He was never assaulted. He was assaulted. It's in spite of the assault. He never failed. He never faltered. He never sinned. And that's what's being demonstrated to us this morning in this passage. The perfection of Jesus Christ. The assault on Christ begins in verse 3 with these words. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Now I want us to dial down that phrase. I don't think it's right for us to understand from that phrase that Satan doubted Jesus' sonship. I don't even think it's right for us to understand that phrase that Satan was trying to get Jesus to doubt his sonship. I don't think that's the goal here. I don't think his goal is to doubt sonship. I think Satan's goal here is to defile the sonship of Jesus. He is the son. Satan knows he's the son. What kind of son will he be? Satan knows that this is the son of God. How do we know that? Look at the first temptation. Command these stones to become bread. Now, 
If you, if you sit and think about it for just a moment this morning, you already know that we're swimming in unique territory here. You say, what do you mean? I say, raise your hand if you've ever been tempted to speak to an inanimate object and make edible food. And if any hands go up, we want to have like a side conversation with you, you know, after we're done this morning. We're not tempted like this. There's something unique going on here. The, the, the word literally is speak to the rocks and make bread. Speak to these stones and make bread. Satan knows he's the son. He knows he has the power to speak to the rocks. There's something unique here. This man is God incarnate. This man speaks to inanimate objects and has the ability to make bread. But there's something important for us to understand about these temptations. Jesus was tempted here, and we we must remember that Jesus was tempted here as the man Christ Jesus. And we won't understand these temptations unless we understand the full humanity of Jesus Christ. He's not a cartoon character in this story. He's the man Christ Jesus. And the place where Matthew emphasizes his his humanity is by highlighting the hunger of Jesus Christ. He's a man. Our human bodies, by God's design, need food to survive. You stop putting food in the human body, at some point that human body dies. This is the way God has made us. And the background of this temptation is we are told that the sinless Son of God, the Spirit-anointed, Spirit-led Son of God, has been fasting for 40 days in this wilderness place. He has not partaken of food in 40 days. And it's left Jesus Christ in this weakened state. And so when we read these words in verse 2, He was hungry. Draw a big distinction of that hunger that you might experience maybe in the next 30 minutes where you're thinking, man, what's for lunch? That's not that kind of hunger that Jesus is experiencing in this passage. This is the hunger for survival. His body hasn't eaten in 40 days. It's it's being stretched To the very limits of human nature. Jesus is placed in this weakened state. And when we read these words that he was hungry. We should understand that as he was famished. The son of God was famished. He needed food. Not just so his belly would stop grumbling. He needed food to survive. He needed food to survive. There is nothing more natural than a hungry man desiring bread. Nothing more natural than this. God has created us as human beings, image bearers of God, that we are dependent on God for sustenance, for bread. So it's a perfectly natural desire. Jesus is not a comic book hero. He's not a cartoon character. He's a man that eats food. And he hasn't had food for 40 days. And he's in a famished state. 
And there's this natural urge rising up within Jesus to have bread. And Satan pounces on this natural appetite. And he uses this natural desire in Jesus. He uses it to tempt Jesus Christ. And he suggests that Jesus miraculously provide bread for himself. Speak to the rocks, speak to the stones, and make them loaves of bread. And this is part of the depth of this story. That there's some things happening here that you might not catch the first time reading through. And what Satan's doing here, and, and really who Satan is, Satan is the, the, the Satan, the enemy of God, the slanderer. That's what his name means. He's a slanderer. He's the father of lies. And so he comes to Jesus and he tempts the son, but at the same time, he slanders the father. And that's something happening under the surface here. Under the surface of this suggestion that Jesus provide for himself is this implication that the father is not providing for you. Listen to this phrase. In Matthew 7, verse 9, Jesus looks at his disciples and he asks them this question. He says, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Now that's that sounds familiar to this passage, does it not? We have a son who's hungry, who needs bread, and we have the suggestion that all God has given his son is rocks. Is rocks. And Jesus, when he asked his disciples this, says, No good father would ever do that to his son. No good father would ever give us a hungry son that asks for bread. Rocks. Satan is suggesting, as he's tempting Jesus, that the father does not love the beloved son. It's as though Satan were saying this, where's the manna? The son is hungry, where's the manna? The son is hungry, where's the bread? Doesn't your father know that you are hungry? And all your father gives you is rocks to eat. Provide for yourself. Now step back for just a moment. And I want you to think about how many times Christians have been tempted in the exact same way. That Satan has come to lie to you about your father who is in heaven. If God loved you, if the father cared for you, and if the father really provided for you, why do you find yourself in this situation? Do you see? He's the slanderer. He will lie to you about God. He's the father of lies. Satan suggests that Jesus, the son of God, should provide for himself. You're the son. There's no reason that you should starve. Speak to the rocks. Speak to the rocks. So it becomes really clear. His goal is not that Jesus would doubt that he is the son, but that Jesus would defile his sonship. Philippians 2 tells us that in the incarnation, God the eternal son becomes God the incarnate son 
And one of the ways that Jesus is described is he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Satan is tempting him to grasp it. He's tempting him to defile his sonship. But he's met a perfect man in Christ Jesus. Jesus has for several decades at this point been marinating in Holy Scripture, been meditating on Holy Scripture. His delight has been in the law of Yahweh, the law of His Father in heaven. And He has this rich, heavenly depository of holy writ, sacred Scripture stored up in His heart. And He knows something. He knows something. This suggestion does not land on Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has been feeding His soul with the truth of God's Word. Which is why He responds in verse 4 by quoting Scripture. Satan tempts Jesus. Jesus responds, It is written. And then He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Now, this is a very important passage that tips us off that Jesus knows something about this moment. Satan is suggesting that the hunger that Jesus is experiencing means that the Father does not love him, has not provided for him. That he needs bread and the Father gives rocks. But this passage that Jesus cites... Helps us to understand that Jesus knows that the hunger that he is experiencing in the wilderness is the will of God. Is the will of his Father who is in heaven. Listen to how this verse starts. Deuteronomy 8, 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger. That's what God did to Israel in the wilderness. Now we better step back for a moment. Because this is one of many places where God's Word sanctifies us. We don't come into this world thinking for a moment that the God of heaven would let His people hunger for a millisecond. And yet there it is, right there on the pages, that when God willed to test Israel, the Bible says He let them hunger. The hunger they experienced in the wilderness was the will of God. So we got to be careful. With these thoughts of my God would never let anybody hunger. Response. Then that God is not the God of the Bible. And it's not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see this citation of Deuteronomy 8.3. It helps us to understand that Jesus knows that he's being tested. Jesus knows that this hunger is the will of God. Deuteronomy 8.3, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna that you did not know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The hunger that Israel experienced in the wilderness was intentional. It was meant to teach Israel to trust God, utterly trust God. To live upon every word from his mouth, even more than they would live upon bread. And they failed that test. But not this son. 
This son is situated in this wilderness and he's, he has this God-ordained hunger, this God-ordained test. And Jesus is the true son of the Father that lives upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want you to understand this is not a question of Jesus' ability to turn the stone into bread. This is not a question of can he. This is a question of will he. In fact, later in the Gospels of Matthew, as Jesus approaches the cross, this would be so helpful for you to grasp that Jesus is able to do this at any moment if he willed, if the Father willed. Jesus said these words, Do you not understand? I can call twelve legions of angels. Do you see? It's not that He can't, it's that He won't. And it's also not a question that it's wrong for the Son to create bread. And we know that because later in the Gospels, guess what will happen? When it's the will of the Father, the beloved Son of God will break the bread bomb in the desert and feed 5,000 at one time. It's not a matter of can He. It's not a matter of ability. It's a matter of the will of the Father. So I want you to understand that Satan in these temptations is trying to drive a wedge between the Father and His beloved Son. But Jesus is perfect. Jesus is absolutely righteous. Satan has never faced a foe like this. He goes to assault him and there is an unconquerable righteousness in Jesus Christ. An unpenetrable will. This man's will is in a hundred percent perfect agreement, perfectly submitted to his father who is in heaven. Satan has never faced a man like this. The Holy One of God. Jesus shows us in this temptation, and I want you to see how beautiful this is. This is Jesus. This is the one whom we worship. That he is willing to obey his father in the wilderness, even unto death. Even unto death. You have a real man who will starve without bread. It's suggested that he provide for himself, that he deliver himself. And Jesus rejects this temptation as the beloved Son of God who lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus trusted His Father to provide bread in the Father's own time. And in the meantime, Jesus Christ would rather starve than sin. The perfect man, Christ Jesus. Rather starve than sin. From the very beginning, He was the Holy One. It's not as though Jesus is in this neutral place. He's the Righteous One. He is conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, sanctified from birth. Before He ever performs one miracle in His ministry, the the audible voice of the Father from heaven says, You are My beloved Son, In you I am well pleased. He has perfectly obeyed His Father. He is the spotless one. Christ Jesus. He is the sinless 
Savior, the perfect man, the beloved Son of God. There is none like Jesus. This is what's being shown to us in this story. That He stands alone. Every other person that Satan has ever tempted, he's never faced a man like this. He stands alone in his righteousness. Spotless, holy, separate from sinners, perfect in every way. Glorious Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that because of this perfect obedience that's going to climax in the cross, that for this reason He's been given the name that is above every name. The name at which every knee will bow. The name of Jesus. The Son of God. Satan attempts to defile the sonship of Jesus Christ. Jesus rejects the first temptation. This temptation continues in verse 5. Except the location changes. We're no longer in the wilderness. In verse 5, the text tells us that Satan takes him to Jerusalem. And suggests that he throw himself off of God's temple in Jerusalem. In the next temptation, the location will change again to a very high mountain where Jesus can see all the kingdoms of the world. You say, I wonder where that's at in this world. It doesn't exist. That's part of the point. We need to understand this. There's nowhere on planet earth that you can get high enough in elevation where you can see all the kingdoms of the world. This is a... This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in a weakened state, famished and fasting. And He's being caught up into this satanic vision. Satan takes Him and tempts Him with this suggestion that Jesus throw Himself from the pinnacle of the temple. This would have been a fatal fall for any human being. But Satan suggests... That because Jesus is the Son, since you're the Son, throw yourself down. Satan suggests that because Jesus is the Son, that God will send angels to deliver Him. And this is the amazing piece. One of the amazing pieces of this temptation that Satan quotes the Bible too. Satan quotes the Bible too. Satan knows Scripture too. Satan cites Psalm 91 to Jesus. And so this temptation comes with Bible behind it. You know Jesus, Psalm 91 promises this. And and Psalm 91 is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God to His people. It's promises that God has made. To every follower of Jesus who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. That's how Psalm 91 starts. Glorious promises of protection from God. Nobody, that was true of nobody ever like it was true of Jesus. That Jesus would dwell in the shelter of the Most High. Perfectly trusted His God. Therefore, the promises in Psalm 91... We're never more sure to anybody than they were sure to Jesus. I want you to understand the temptation. Satan suggests that because Psalm 91 says this, God is going to send angels to catch you. 
to deliver you from certain death. Satan is twisting this promise. He's manipulating the Word of God, just like he did to our first parents in the garden. You see, twist what God says. This is one of the ways that he slanders God to us. See, twist the Scriptures. Satan is suggesting that because Jesus is the Son, he can create a situation that forces God to act. Because you're the Son, you can throw yourself down and you can bind God to His Word. You can force Him to act. And so if the first temptation was tempting the Son to do a miracle and distrust His Father, the second temptation is tempting the Son to demand a miracle from His Father. Again, sonship is the aim. Drive a wedge between the Father and the Son. Satan says, demand the Father to deliver you. It's exactly backwards. It's exactly backwards. Jesus rejects this suggestion. Again, what happens? The Holy Son of God reaches in to this depository, this this, uh, uh, safety deposit box of Holy Scripture. He's been feeding on the Word of God since he was the youngest of children. And he knows something. He knows that if he does what Satan suggests that he do, it would directly contradict what God says in His Word. And so, Jesus is letting Scripture interpret Scripture. This is the same thing that we do all the time when we practice a right understanding of God's Word. The Bible cannot mean over here what would clearly contradict it over here. It cannot. And so Jesus rejects Satan's temptation, not because he doesn't believe Psalm 91... Jesus rejects it because he understands that Satan is twisting this promise. And so again, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy from this wilderness section. Deuteronomy this time, chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus understands that if he did this, if he did what Satan is suggesting, it would be like what Israel did when they put God to the test. In the wilderness at Massa. It would be just like that if I did what you're suggesting. And that story is that after God brought his people out into the wilderness. After he delivered them from their enemies. Drowned their enemies in the Red Sea. You got a flaming fire theophany leading the people of God through the wilderness. And at Massa in the wilderness, they say, Did you bring us out here to kill us? You're not a good father. You're going to let us die in the wilderness. And they demanded that God provide for them water to drink. And that's the passage where Moses stands on the rock and, and is commanded to strike the rock. And God brings forth water from the rock. This is the... The the putting the Lord to the test in the wilderness. Demanding a miracle. 
distrusting your God. And Jesus says, you, should not, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, one of the things that I want us to learn and be reminded of is from this second temptation, we're reminded that Satan is a preacher. He's a preacher. Anybody that stands in a place like this and opens the Bible and begins to talk, it's not automatically guaranteed that everything they're saying is from the Lord. In fact, Satan himself preaches God's Word. His text in this temptation is Psalm 91. And I want you to learn Satan's hermeneutic in this passage. How does Satan handle Scripture? I want you to be equipped as a follower of Jesus that you understand these satanic methods, the, the, the satanic strategy. What is Satan's hermeneutic? He attempts to present the promises of God in such a way that bind God to man's will. That's what we see in this passage. Make him do what you want him to do. How many times have we heard this? You ever wonder what's wrong with the prosperity gospel? Right there. Right there. Take the promises of God in Holy Scripture and present them in such a way that you make God do what you want God to do. That's Satan's hermeneutic. It's this subtle, crafty way that Scripture is handled that inverts. It is exactly backwards. It makes man Lord of God instead of God Lord of man. This is the temptation, second temptation in the wilderness. And again, Jesus rejects it. And then we come to the final temptation in verse 8. On a very high mountain, Jesus has shown all the kingdoms of the world. And then look, and their glory. Remember, this is part of that vision. And just for a moment, I want you to pause and meditate. That you have no idea how enticed you would be if you saw what Jesus saw in this moment. You have no idea. Every ounce of worldly glory that ever is, that ever was, He was shown in a moment of time. All the, the bling of Babylon. All the glory of Rome. All the might. All the majesty of all the powers of all the ages. All the kingdoms. All the kings. And their glory. We have no idea how enticed we would be. And the only reason Satan hasn't tempted us in this way is because we are shielded by God. We are protected by God. None of us could stand a temptation like this. All the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, I will give them to you. This offer comes with a steep price. Satan says, fall down and worship me. Again, this involves an attack on Jesus' Father as well as the temptation to the Son. 
To have God as His Father meant that Jesus would suffer before entering into His glory. That's why He's in the wilderness. That's why He's headed to the cross. But Satan offers Jesus the glory without the suffering. The crown without the cross. It's as though He said, you don't have to do this. What are you doing hungering? You don't have to suffer. And you sure don't have to die. I'll give you everything. That's the temptation. Satan says, I'll give you the glory. You could even understand it this way. I'll be your father. I'll provide for you. I won't make you suffer. This is not the last time Jesus will be tempted in this way. Turn quickly to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. In verse 21, Jesus begins to reveal to his disciples that he, as the Messiah, the Son of Man, listen, 1621 must suffer many things from the elders and the priest and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Sounds like the gospel, right? The death and the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to the immediate response of his disciple. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord! This will never happen to you. You're the son. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to be killed. Far be it from you, Jesus. Very next verse, Jesus interprets those words coming from the lips of Peter as actually originating from Satan himself. Verse 23, but Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is the way that Satan tempted him. Offering the glory without the suffering. With a steep price. That Jesus would worship him. You could say it this way. Jesus could have gained the whole world. And yet Jesus would have lost his soul. Think about that. Also Matthew 16. Very next paragraph. Think about how much those words mean from the man. Who was offered the whole world. And I have no doubt that there's some here this morning. You're tempted with worldliness. You're tempted to feast at the table of the world in whatever way you're being tempted. Prominence, possessions, whatever it is. And I want to remind you that even if you're a billionaire in this room, And you got a hundred million followers on your uh, Instagram account this morning. That you have only been 
been offered a slice and a sliver of what Jesus was offered. A millimeter of what Jesus Christ was offered. He was offered all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And so take it from the man who was offered the whole thing. He says, what profit is it? If you gain the whole world and you lose your soul. Jesus dismisses Satan after this third temptation. And I love this. Be gone. Be gone. Get out of here. You're done. And then he cites again another quote from Deuteronomy 6, this time verse 13, where he says, You shall worship the Lord only. You shall worship the Lord only. So Jesus has perfectly trusted His Father. Jesus has perfectly obeyed His Father. Jesus has defeated the devil in this story. And this is is where we stand back and begin to worship. And He did it in a human body. He even did it in weakness. I want you to imagine, this this analogy breaks down in so many ways, so don't overcook this. But I want you to imagine two athletes, rivals, calling out one another that we're finally going to decide who's better. And I want you to imagine one of those saying, wait just a second, I want to delay this thing 40 days. Not so that I can improve my skills and, 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 and build up my abilities. I want to wait 40 days and I want, I want to be in the weakest state that I can possibly be because I'm going to beat you on my worst day. I will beat you when I'm at my weakest. This is the contrast of Jesus Christ. He defeats the devil and he's famished in the wilderness. So we have this beautiful contrast of the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. First Adam was in paradise. He never knew suffering before he sinned. First Adam never suffered before he sinned. He had a belly full of of the luscious provision that you could possibly eat. God said, from all the trees in the garden, you may eat freely. And yet from this place in Eden, the first Adam fell. But the last Adam is not placed in Eden. He's placed in the wilderness. And he's not, he doesn't have this sufferingless uh, existence before God. He's suffering. Hunger is gnawing at his body. In weakness, Jesus defeats the devil. It highlights his perfection. It highlights his perfect obedience. He is the tried and tested Savior. He is the tempted and triumphant King of glory. In Christ, the devil has been defeated. This is part of the good news of the gospel. Jesus has overcome the devil. Verse 11, when the devil leaves, the angels come. In verse 11, and this is beautiful stuff. In the context, when it it says the angels ministered to Jesus, when it says they served him, the context means that they fed him. They sustained his human body. This is like Elijah receiving sustenance in the wilderness. 
So I want you to understand the contrast. The, the Father provided exactly what Satan offered. Do you see it? In the Father's own time, in the Father's own way, the Father provided exactly what Jesus was tempted with. The beloved Son refused to provide bread for Himself. He waited upon His Father, and the Father sent the sustenance in His own time. Beautiful! So not only is Jesus stronger, Satan is a liar and the Father is good. We can trust the Father. The beloved Son who refused in that second temptation to demand that the angels deliver Him. Guess what? Father sends angels to deliver Him. The very thing that Satan offered, the Father provides in His own time according to His own will. He received more than what Satan offered. The Father is good. One takeaway for us is that we would learn whatever our God ordains is right. Whatever He ordains for us is right and it's good. And it is good for us to wait upon our God and to put our trust in our Father who is in heaven. Not to make the arm of flesh our strength. The perfect obedience of Jesus is an obedience unto death. It's an obedience unto death. We get a glimpse of this in Matthew 4. But this perfect obedience is going to be fully manifested at the cross of Jesus Christ. God incarnate, condescended, reached down, humbled Himself to the lowest place. Philippians 2. He humbled Himself. Not only did He become obedient, not only in the form of a servant, but He became obedient even to the point of death. Even to the point of death on the cross. And so this perfect obedience in the heart of Jesus Christ that's willing to starve instead of sin, it's going to be manifested at the cross of Jesus Christ. And after His obedient death, the one who refused all the kingdoms of the world and their glory was raised from the dead. And guess what? Father provided more for Jesus. The Father provided more for Jesus than what Satan offered him. He was given all authority in heaven and on earth. He was given the name that is above every name. Not just was He given the kingdoms of the world. He became the King of the kingdom of heaven. The one who sits at the right hand of the Father. He rejected the cheap substitutes and the Father provided for His Son. He received more than Satan promised. Jesus received the whole world and He kept His soul. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to Him. And so we see the path in this story is suffering then glory. This is the path of Jesus Christ. The way of the cross. And He did this for us. He did this for us. I want you to think about how damned we would be if Jesus took the glory without the suffering. 
There is no gospel. There is no substitute. And yet that's exactly what he is in this story. This story is gospel to us. Because not only the death of Jesus, but also the life of Christ is God's gift to us. He is our substitute in his living. He is our substitute in his dying. In his life, he's rendering this perfect obedience that's required for life in the presence of God. How are you going to live in the presence of God? We must receive this perfect obedience, this unconquerable righteousness. We must receive it as a gift from the Father in heaven. And it's only through the gospel that the righteousness of God is manifested. And this is exactly what God has given us. Who trust in Jesus Christ. Those who trust in Jesus receive His perfect record in place of their faulty record. The gospel gives us the perfect record of Jesus by giving us the gift of righteousness. Justification by faith is not only not guilty. Justification by faith is a declaration from the God of heaven that we are righteous because Jesus is righteous and we're in Jesus. The very righteousness of the Son of God has been given to you, brothers and sisters, who believe the gospel. The righteousness of the Son. The gift of grace. The garments of salvation that we wear for all eternity is the perfect record of Jesus. It's not our own deeds. It's not our own works. It's His perfect life and His perfect death imputed to all who believe. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. To be sin. So that in Him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. He's in the wilderness for you. He's in the wilderness for us. He's being tested for us. And here's the warning. Those who refuse to receive the perfect obedience of Jesus, this perfect obedience of Christ becomes the standard by which they are judged on the final day. We will be judged on the final day in the presence of God by a standard of perfection. We will not give an account to God and He will not judge us on a curve that we're better than some people. You must be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. God requires a spotless righteousness to live in His presence. Woe to the man. Woe to the woman. Woe to the old man or old woman or young boy or young girl who appears in the presence of Almighty God without the righteous record of Jesus Christ as your garment as the gift of grace that covers you. His perfect obedience is part of the gospel. All who follow Jesus will follow this same path of suffering to glory. And some of you, it didn't take long after you were saved to figure that out. Maybe you were lied to. Somebody told you that it was going to be really easy as a Christian. And then about five seconds into the Christian life, there's glorious realities. Your sins are forgiven and you know God. 
But there's also these other realities that you have this war raging in your heart now to bring glory to God or to be tempted to sin. Christians must follow the same path that Christ followed, suffering then glory. Christian life will be a life of temptation to sin, just like Jesus was tempted. Except some significant ways that are different. We have sin at work in our members. We have that conflict within that we see in Romans 12, indwelling sin. Jesus never knew that. Jesus was always tempted from the outside in, never from the inside out. Jesus was perfect. His heart was perfect. His will was perfect. His mind was perfect. But we, we face the similar path. This path of temptation. Suffering, then glory. The Christian life is a temptation to sin. And this story helps us fight sin. And I want to just note two ways. How we can be instructed this morning. And our battle with sin. Whatever that is for you. The first is this. That Jesus as the perfect man quotes scripture. I hope you notice that. Every single time he was tempted. It is written. Quoting Bible. So I want to press into that for just a moment. Brothers and sisters. What are you doing with the Bible? What are you doing with it in your life? The man Christ Jesus, the perfect man who defeated the devil. This is a perfect example for us of how to conquer temptation. And he uses the Bible. Doesn't have to use the Bible. The man could speak to rocks and make bread. He could open his mouth and red letters start flying out. New revelation. Why this way? Why this way is he defeating the evil one? It is written. Why is he quoting scripture? He's teaching us. This is how perfect humanity fights the devil. With God's word. And the argument goes from greater to lesser. If this is how Jesus fought the devil, how much more should we fight the devil in this way? What are you doing with the Bible? There will always be this direct connection between your personal feeding on God's word and your personal holiness. They always go together. They always go together. You need something more than hearing God's word, which this is good that you're here and you're hearing preaching this morning. We want it to be helpful to you and nourishing for your soul. But you need more than that. You need more than that. The Bereans are those noble Christians that heard God's word preached. And then they went and they searched the scriptures every day to see if the things that they were hearing were true. You must be in God's word. There are no substitutes to a personal, diligent walk in the Bible. There are no substitutes. And you can, you can even say it this way. If you don't have Bible in this battle, you're going to get smoked. Absolutely smoked. In this temptation to sin. Have you ever, have you ever noticed this? That temptation is never overcome by... My mama says this about God. My pastor, you know, said this one time. 
about God. John Piper says this. The catechism says this. The creed says this. That's not how we're being instructed to fight sin. We're being instructed to use the book. It is written. Ephesians 6 says that this is the sword of the Spirit of God. And Jesus is wielding the sword as a perfect man. This is a means of grace that God has given us to defeat sin and temptation. He's teaching us how to fight. You need to know God's word for yourself. You cannot piggyback off of somebody else's knowledge of Scripture. You need it for yourself. And you know what? In the wilderness and all hundreds of kind of ways in our life when we're tempted, there's no time for, hang on just a second, Satan. I'm going to grab my concordance. I know that verse is there somewhere. I'll be right back. I know it's there somewhere. I know it's there somewhere. Many times there's no time to get on the computer and say, man, where was that verse at? Are you ready for battle? Jesus didn't have a concordance in the wilderness. Jesus didn't have an iPhone in the wilderness. Jesus didn't pull up Ask Pastor John in the wilderness. Jesus said it is written. Do you see? The word is in him. In his heart. And he defeats the devil. And this is exactly what God calls us to. Psalm 119. Verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's the power of God available to us. And I say this not to encourage you, but to awaken you, because sometimes the first thing we ought to reach for, for whatever reason, is the last thing we think about. And so I want to encourage you, get to the Word. Get the Word in you. Get off of whatever you need to get off of. Social media. Get off of reading a hundred books. Get in the Bible. Get the Word of God into your heart. First thing we reach for instead of the last. You can be instructed from this passage that, that temptation will not be conquered By the water guns of human wisdom. But by the God-breathed words of Scripture. Fight like Jesus fought. Fight your lust with the Bible. Fight your anxiety with the Bible. Fight your selfishness with the Bible. Fight your unbelief with the Bible. Trust God and use the Scriptures. This is the path of victory that was blazed by the perfect man. Christ Jesus. Second encouragement for us in this temptation of Jesus Christ is that this temptation makes Jesus, not just this one, but his whole life. We're told it makes Jesus a merciful high priest. A merciful high priest. Now don't get it twisted, especially in You know, our overcooked empathy culture that for some reason we're only comforted if somebody's right down in our sin with us. You know, you can't you can't help me with uh, pornography unless you're in pornography. This nonsense of empathy. You can't help me unless you're in it kind of thing. 
There's something beautiful here that Jesus is in it in the sense that Jesus was tempted by sin. He was assaulted. He knows what that feels like. But Jesus is not down in the midst of our junk. Jesus is standing outside the pit. He can rescue us. He is a merciful high priest. He has compassion on us and he can deliver us. Hebrews 4, 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The testedness of Jesus Christ makes him a merciful high priest and that's supposed to make us run to him to draw near to the throne of grace. And so brothers and sisters, take courage in this battle against sin. Take courage in your temptations to sin. Our battle is not foreign to Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to be assaulted. And yet He is the one who defeated the devil. And think of this glorious thought. The one who defeated the devil is at the right hand of the Father right now praying for us. Praying for us. What a beautiful truth. Perfect Son of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you glory this morning as a local church for the person and the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would cancel anything that was spoken today that was wrong, Lord, and that you would cause your word to dwell richly in every heart. Lord, we ask that you would deliver us today from empty religion of just coming to this meeting. And Lord, we pray that you would make your word profitable to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom.